So I am here with a return visitor, the one and the only Wayne Dunson out of Texas. And uh, Wayne, you started working a lot with solar leases lately. And that conversation keeps coming up with different agents around the country, with leads that we get into our system. You know, a lot of people are curious about the prospects of leasing their land for solar but not a lot of people know how to go about it. And a lot of outfits give a reputation to that entire process as being scammy. Some of it seems a little bit vague. Some people are just scared to like talk about it, you know, and, and talk to the wrong person because there's a lot of outfits doing solar. You have experience in this area and you can kind of give people a leg up on what, what the process looks like, right? For sure. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So let's, let's start at the 101 level. And what's a solar lease? You know, like are the, these people are not buying your land. They're putting their solar panels up on it. What does that look like? Okay. So I'm going to break it down. I, and I've got something that I want to read verbatim because I want people to truly understand what this really is. What you're doing when you lease your property to a developer for a solar farm, uh, let's just start at the basics. Uh, cause this is what I tell every client that I work with, because that's how we operate at national land. If you come to me and you're interested in solar, I'm going to represent you in the process. So uh, do I have relationships with developers? Well, sure I do. Um, and we have a great platform at national land to market the property, to try to attract developers that I don't have a relationship with, because obviously we want maximum exposure to get the best deal. Um, <clears throat> but the way I break it down in the simplest terms, uh, is the, the solar developers, nothing more than a tenant and you're their landlord. So, uh, what I tell everyone is, listen, if you bought a house and you wanted to rent that out, you're going to hire a realtor. They're going to charge say 10% for a management fee. And they're going to go out there and they're going to find a tenant. They're going to vet them out. You know, you'll negotiate the rent and then you'll sign a contract. And so in, in the in the most basic sense, if you want to look at how we operate, that's the way I picture it in my mind, right? I've, I've got somebody, they've got this piece of ground um, that I'm just looking at, like say, okay, it's their house. We need to see if this house is going to fit this developer's needs uh, and see if we can't put a deal together. Uh, and then we'll work with you, uh, you know, through the entire process from start to finish on the negotiating end of it all. Um, but when we look at the, the lease, it's a little bit different. So we're not just going to be signing, you know, like a one-year lease agreement. Um, 
it's a lot more in depth than that. And so that's when things get a little more crazy. And, and what we're really doing is we're signing an easement. So that solar developer, when they come in there, they're going to set up shop for a long time. Um, usually 30, 40 years is what these things can go out to. And so we're going to be signing an easement. And, and really, I'm going to read something to you guys that, that came out of a, a contract. Um, and it says in here, and it's got a, a big paragraph and in bold lettering, it says easement. And it okay. says an easement. Uh, and it says in here, landlord grants tenant during the term of this lease, an easement for unobstructed light solar energy resources over, under, and across the land as reasonably necessary for tenants intended use on the premises. So really you're, you're leasing them long-term uh, and they're, they're going to write in an easement for the surface of that entire property, whatever the acreage is that they decide to lease for the production uh, of solar energy. And they don't want anything on or around that property that can obstruct the sunlight from getting to that easement. Uh, and that's paramount. And there's a lot of detail in these that really get into that. So at the end of the day, that's really, even though it is an easement, so it's a lot more complicated than just say a one-year lease agreement or a hunting lease or something that's a little more short-term or a farm lease, you know, grazing lease. These are these are much more uh, involved, but that's really all you're doing is you're just taking the, the, the surface of this property, leasing it out to a tenant and you will be the landlord and you will receive compensation uh, for the use of that property for the life, life of that, that easement agreement. So when you're talking about a long-term agreement like this, first question I think anybody's going to ask is, is there an out? Not really. No, okay. <laughs> these, these are pretty binding. So uh, I'll, let's just, and, and I don't want to get ahead. You may have this in there somewhere, but uh, when we look at the length of these, um, there's a period in these contracts that, and, and, if you were buying a house in Texas, they would call it an option, termination okay. option. Um, and that it really is a termination option. It's an option for the developer to walk away. And most of my contracts that I see are four to five years. Um, and in these contracts, they call it a due diligence period. And, and, and that's aptly named uh, because it is a due diligence period for the developer. You own the dirt, you know what you've got there. But the developer has a whole, whole lot, uh, just a litany of things that they need to go through to ensure that that property is going to match their needs. Um, and so they need a lot of time to do that. And so, you know, usually you're starting out with several years in this due diligence period. You do get reimbursement. It's usually small. There's not a lot of money in that because you can continue to operate your property just like you are right now. If you're leasing it uh, to a farmer, they may want you to limit the length of those leases. If you're actively farming it yourself, keep going. If you've got a grazing lease, a hunting lease, whatever you're doing during that due diligence period, you're getting a little bit of money just to have your property off market. They do their research and you just keep doing business as usual and you get a little bit of something for your time. Uh, but then when you break into the construction and the actual, you know, operation of the, the solar farm, the shortest I've seen is 20 years that, that ties back usually to, um, what they call a power purchase agreement. So they've got to find somebody like a Elon Musk or United airlines or somebody that they're going to 
contract to sell that power to most of those purchase agreements typically are a minimum 20 years in length. So they'll do usually a minimum initial term of 20 years. And then they'll have like five year extensions that they'll tack on for the ability to maybe go up to 40 years. Uh, I've also seen initial terms at 30. So once you get past that due diligence period, if they do break ground short of a catastrophic event, um, there's really no way to default. Uh, even if you were just ran off crazy and decided I'm going to put a lien against this property and do something weird, they actually have the right to go take care of that. <laughs> and, and they're going to take it out of the money they're going to pay you. Um, you know, so, and, and the, the leases speak very specifically to that. Uh, you know, if a tornado, like an EF5 came in there and just gutted the middle of this giant solar field and they look at it and go, you know what, economically, this just isn't feasible to rebuild. They may just say, we're going to, we're going to part ways. Um, chances of that happening are pretty slim. So yeah, once you're in, you're, you're locked in, but I tell you the financial benefits, I, I've not seen anybody. They're usually begging for somebody to do this. Gotcha. So, so the, so the whole, so the process is you got to date them for a long time before you get married, but once you're married, you're in it. <laughs> oh yes. Yep. There's no running from it. You're, you're, you're there and you're locked in. All right. So, so, which thank you. Cause I, I mean, that's, I, I thought that was a really, really great rundown. Thank you. Um, sure. So if I'm a landowner, I'm just curious about, I got some land. I got, you know, like a hundred acres or whatever sitting out here and I'm not, I'm running some cattle on it maybe. And you know, your, your grazing leases, you know, you're not going to break bank on grazing leases. You, you might pay for, you know, some things, get some income going in. But if I'm curious about solar, where do I start and what do I do? I mean, I, I just open the phone book and call the first solar company I see in there or how, how does this go about happening? You know, um, if it were me, <clears throat> I would definitely be digging around and trying to find somebody that actually knows about uh, this this type of, of solar development. I mean, because we're on a grand scale. This is not the same thing as uh, and, and, you know, you and I have had this discussion uh, about solar panels for a house. Right. Uh, this is a whole different ball of wax. I mean, we're talking about. I mean, it's not uncommon for guys to throw numbers around like $50 million for, you know, construction and costs over the life of a project and this, that, and the other, there's a, a ton of money that goes into this. Um, and there's also some people that, um, uh, maybe don't necessarily do the same amount of upfront vetting and you get, you know, you're still going to, you, you lose, however many years that you've agreed to in the due diligence window. And they may not have ever had the money to build that in the first place. And they were hoping they could flip that off to someone that did, um, or they just don't do any upfront work. And then they get into it early on and go, Oh dang, man, you know, this just isn't going to work. And maybe it took them three years to ever get to that point, but they've also optioned up eight other places and they go, eh, whatever. And they terminate and you've lost this time. And it's kind of heartbreaking if you thought you had all this money coming. Uh, and there's never going to be a guarantee. Don't get me wrong. No one's going to guarantee you it's going to work. But um, not all companies are built the same. Not all business models are the same. There's some guys that will come in and build them and flip them. That's that's their whole thing. They contract it out. They build the farm and then they sell that to somebody. They never have intentions of holding it. Some people come in and they're a one-stop shop. 
there's a whole host of business models, just like anything else. Uh, but you also, and I think this is very unique to national land. And I'm sure there's some others out there that do this. I've been on some panels with some people that do, but something pretty unique that national land offers is landowner representation. So if you call a energy developer, say you just go on Google and say, who's the biggest solar developer? And it pops up some names and you start calling them. Maybe they're going to look into it, but are they really concerned about you maximizing your profit? No, no, they're not. Um, and so you have zero representation going into that. And if you don't know what you're doing, you could end up signing something that's really horrible for you. And so we are there not only to prevent your property, because we can tell you up front whether or not you're going to get anything, probably any action uh, or anyone looking at it. But if you do have a parcel that looks like it is going to work, you need somebody that's been through this. that can look at a contract and go, this is horrible, you know, um, and, and, you know, we could talk about this later, but I also believe legal representation is another big thing that every party in one of these, if you're a landowner needs to have, um, that their service is there that I can't render because I'm not an attorney. Um, but just from the representation side, from understanding how these work from start to finish, uh, to be able to vet out contracts, look at offers, these kind of things, um, you need to reach out to somebody like us, like us at National Land, because we have the tools so I can log into LandGate, uh, which is another platform, another fantastic technology tool that we have. And if you tell me, um, you call me and you say, I've got a hundred acres. Well, hundred acres, there's some distribution scale properties that might, might go a hundred and they're probably going to be very close to some type of municipality. And maybe it's just going to be used to pipe in some power to something small. But most of the energy developers that I talk to, they're going to be looking at something like 100 megawatt utility scale uh, properties. Uh, and this is Texas. Now, not, not, not everywhere, but in Texas. Um, well, if you're looking at 100 megawatt, I had them break this down to me. Uh, or if you want to just say this, I had them dumb it down where I could understand it. There you go. You can, you can get into formulas where you start talking about the number of panels and, you know, wattage and all this other stuff. Like, I don't want to know, like, tell me how many acreage, like how many acres do I need to fit this? So here's that easy rule of thumb for Texas. You can produce one megawatt of land on six acres. So if I need a hundred megawatts for a utility scale project, that's going to be attractive to a developer out here in Texas. Now this is just general then I need uh, about 600 acres, but then they may need some property for a substation so that you can take all this power and then feed it off into a feeder line somewhere an interconnect point. Uh, almost all the solar projects nowadays have battery storage. I was going to say battery storage is probably another one, right? Yeah. Battery storage is going to be built into almost all these projects now. So there's got to be additional acreage. So really there's, there's going to be some give and take. It's not, this is not uh cookie cutter, but by and large, I would like to see a square section. I would love to have 640 acres or more for everybody that reaches out to me. Now, I've got a deal right now to be seen if we're going to make it across the finish line and actually start construction, but it's 325 acres, kind of unusual. I don't think yeah. I have anything smaller right now that's in the option. Nothing smaller than 825 acres other than that one kind of anomaly, and they seem to specialize in these smaller properties. so. Um, so yeah, the bigger, the better really in most cases.
Gotcha. And so what's some of the considerations that you you could look at if, if you have land? So and somebody's sitting on like a thousand acres or something like that, like, oh, yeah, I'm going to lease my land. But you've got, you know, I'll, I'll just throw out some some parameters there. You've got steep ridge lines and valleys on that thousand acres and a lot of trees like so, I mean, you're able to look at that topography and go, mm, that's not going to be all that well used. But are there other considerations? Because, I mean, the, the topography, I feel like that one should be pretty self-apparent. Like you're talking flatland and you, you're talking no sun obstruction, right? You, I've never seen a, a solar panel on, you know, a hillside. But when you're talking about other things, like do you need like proximity to a power relay? Do you need proximity to clients? Meaning like, so you mentioned uh you know a, a specific company buying out the power or or purchasing the power do they need a specific proximity to that are they looking to get in range so if you're out i've got a thousand acres but there's not a source of civilization for 200 miles is that going to be usable you know do, do, do they have sort of like a rule i want to say rule of thumb but do they have the kind of any established things like that that you've seen Oh, sure. I mean, when you, at the end of the day, uh, these energy developers, right, that project's got to, it's got to amortize out on paper uh, from a financial viability side, right? It's got to make sense. Um, and, and so the first thing we're going to look at is distance to the nearest transmission line. That's called the interconnect point, And that can make or break a deal. Um, I've talked to a company that says they'll stretch one three miles to a transmission line if the project is right. Three is stretching it. It's going to have to be really primo location for that, probably. Uh, we would like to see you, if not touching, within one mile of a good transmission line. So you want to be, and, and that's really what we're looking at is infrastructure. So do we have good access? Do we have a good transmission line or two or several in some cases that we can connect to because that interconnect point is, is crucial. If we can produce all the power, wonderful, but how do we tie into the grid? So you got to have that. So I would love to see it within a mile uh, or less of a transmission line. And then within two to three miles of the substation. So wherever that line is connecting into. And so that's, that's a pretty good rule of thumb as far as distance to infrastructure. And I, I've, I mean, I live on the edge of a pretty vast area of just open desert. And I had somebody reach out to me one time and I'm thinking, oh, okay, cool. They've got some land way out here. It was 19 miles to the closest line. They're never going to get. Okay, kind of, yeah. They're never going to get anything out there. It's, uh, it's not a utility to run a transmission line out to it. <laughs> yeah. You need the grid built out, which is something Texas has got to work on. But um yeah, so that's that's the biggest thing I think we all look at is if you've got the right acreage and it's not insanely steep, you can harvest timber. That's a doable thing. Um, but if it's pretty level ground, water. Water is a big deal killer on solar. Obviously, electricity and water, they don't mix well. And so solar does not want to have apply a lake in the middle of it. Um, I did have one that where we actually planned around the playa lake uh but they had to cut out some acreage and we had to plan an easement route um it was a pretty complicated deal um but you can't have a playa you can't have any kind of intermittent springs no you know you can't have like a, a gully that's going to flood in a thunderstorm um things of that nature that you know kind of going back to what you were talking about with crazy topography 
Um, and, and that's one thing. And that's a neat deal about our tool with Landgate is I can get on there. I can take your property, map it out, run a report without ever seeing the property. I don't need to go out there and look at it. I can pull up all the infrastructure. I can see the substations. I can see other solar farms. I can see other wind farms. I can see the transmission lines. I can see the roads. I can also see topography, the water features, and I can run a report and it'll tell me exactly how much buildable acreage out of that thousand acres that you've got. How much of that do I have that's actually buildable based on slope, water flow, all of that, and kick out a report and know pretty quick whether or not that's even going to be a viable site. That's terrific. And, and so you you spoke to something earlier about <clears throat> partnering with, say, a, you know, a specialist like you who knows how to represent people against not against, but but for the best interest of the client with specifically solar or or the the use that you're talking about. So like we could be talking about um, let me throw something out like a hunting lease. And if you bring somebody in that doesn't know anything about hunting leases, it's not going to be very helpful. But if you bring somebody in that knows solar, but you also want your legal representation. And the reason I bring this up, because you cued me up thinking about people that I know in my background and, and you know, just rural life in general. And, and a lot of the times what you have is you'll have a landowner. It's like, hey, I got a question. You know, here's this situation. You're going to want to find the right person. Oh, I'm just going to give it to my accountant. Like everybody has their one person that they go to and you can't talk them out of it. Like, like, yeah, I got a speeding ticket. That's cool. I'm going to send it to my accountant. Like your accountant is not an attorney, but they, they, but that's their person for fiduciary responsibility. And it's, it's not a knock on the landowner at all. Like you found somebody that you're comfortable with that you trust and it's hard to trust new people, but you also have to have the right tool for the job. Right. Like, and that's the big thing is is you've got to know that that your your service providers in your life or in your area are your tools and you, you your accountant doesn't know anything about solar and even if you have a great attorney the chances of them they know contracts but do they know solar business right because again let's take the accountant scenario and you work with an attorney all the time and you're because a lot of the times you have an attorney and you send your taxes to them and they all they're doing is sending it to their accountant friend but you trust the attorney any contract that you have, you send to them. So they can tell you if, if like, okay, yep, this is a straightforward contract. It's 30 years. It does this. Yep. You're going to get a solar lease on your land and you're going to have that. This contract shakes out, looks, you know, blah, 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 looks standard. But that doesn't mean they understand solar business, right? It, 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 the contract could be fine, but that doesn't mean it's a good business plan. And so an expert like yourself, you, you want to make sure you have the right tools in place and the right people. And I think that that's really important, especially in areas where you have that trust network that you do in small towns. Oh yeah. So yeah. And you, you hit something that was so right. Like you don't <laughs> want to call uh, the personal injury lawyer that says, were you hit, hurt in a car accident? Call me. Like, that's not the guy that we want. We want someone versed in oil and gas and minerals and solar and wind, somebody that understands these type of contracts. Uh, because really when you break it down and you look at these, the language that's in all of these solar contracts is so close to the same. Uh, it has a lot to do, especially on the utility scale, because there's federal permitting involved. Uh, there's liability issues with hold harmless and insurance taxes, especially there's language in there for financing. Um, there's just, it, it's, they almost all read the same to a certain degree. Um, 
but for instance, I just ran into this not too long ago with one that we, we took, we worked on this for a long time. Um, you know, and I, I did the same thing. I said, I believe you need, uh, uh, to get a lawyer involved and lo and behold, these people had actually had a bad, pro uh, bad time trying to negotiate a solar deal before they called and, and reached out to us. So they'd already gone through this and had a bad thing, you know, had a really bad time with it and it never went anywhere and they lost a lot of time and they were pretty frustrated and they were kind of just like at the end of their rope thinking we got no shot at ever getting this done. I can't find anybody that knows anything about solar. Uh, and they found us and it was like turning the lights on for them. They were like, holy crap. I started talking language they'd never heard, uh, but they had an attorney. Turned out he's now on our preferred service provider list. Um, when you go to our website, I've added that guy. He is incredible. Um, he's not the only one that I've got on there, but that guy did have solar experience and he was fantastic. Uh, one of the best I think I've ever worked with. Um, that happens rarely where someone comes to me armed with an attorney that's versed in solar contracts, but the dude was fantastic. And here's the thing. I'm a realtor, but I'm not an attorney. Even the forms that I use for contracts say to sell a ranch, those are drafted by a broker lawyer committee for the entire state. And we are strictly specifically told you can't even write anything in these contracts unless there's a blank in there to fill in, um, you know, cause the attorneys don't want us practicing law. And we ran into an issue, um, and this is common. Uh, one of the guys didn't own any any uh, mineral rights on his property. And this was a co-op, so we had three landowners that we pieced all this land together because none of them alone had enough acreage. But together, we had more than enough. In fact, we had to take a guy out that didn't get lucky. I felt bad for him. He drew the short straw because he was farthest away from the transmission line. There you go. That's how important infrastructure is on a deal. Um, we had five guys, two got knocked out because they were too far away from the line. So uh, anyway, we we uh, find out one of the guys doesn't have his, uh, he doesn't own any mineral rights. Uh, well, he owned a small amount, but not enough. Well, they wanted to use his entire 400 and some odd acres. Well, guess what? In Texas, mineral rights, uh, the mineral right owner is actually dominant to the surface estate. You cannot keep them from accessing minerals. Well, the last thing a solar farm wants is a bunch of 18 wheelers and heavy equipment running into the middle of a solar array, setting up this massive drilling rig and start drilling a well in the middle of a solar farm. Right. Right. Um, and the way they place those together, there's not going to be any room. They plan to maximize, maximize efficiency by covering all that acreage and solar panels, right? There's right. a lot of space for that. We had to negotiate a drill site agreement that said there's going to be X acres over here carved out of this project, and it's going to be reserved for the, the mineral owner so that they can come in and drill there if they want to access those minerals. Um, and I, there's no way uh, that I can draft that kind of stuff. That's, that's, that's an attorney that needs to come in and draft that type of language so that if we ever ended up in a pickle with this mineral owner and then we ended up in court and they say, well, who drafted that? And they say, I'm a realtor. Wayne just drew up that drill side agreement. It was great. They're going to laugh all the way to the bank. And so Somebody's going to jail yes. <laughs> and, and they're going to kill me in the parking lot. So this attorney drew up a nice, you know, thing that addressed that and did it in a legal way that protected everybody. Um, and that's why it's so important. And then, of course, they also review all the contract language and make sure that there's nothing that's 
detrimental to the landowners. Um, you know, there's just a lot of things that I think you got to have. And because I can't draft contracts, we need to have that in there. Um, even the best written contract, when they send it to us, those energy companies are expecting us to have it reviewed. And we go through a red line process where the attorneys will redline and make comments. We'll send it to their contract people. Their crew will review, make comments, go back. And we do this back and forth. We had one go back for so many months one time. The developers finally said, this is it. Take it or leave it. We're done. And uh, the attorney wanted to keep going on it. I think he was just loving the paychecks. I was going to say that. Like, you know, uh, getting people who disagree just makes attorneys a lot of money. (laughs) Yeah. And uh, finally, they just said enough's enough. This is our breaking point. We're not doing anymore. Uh, I think he wanted to call their bluff. And the landowner said, we're good. Let's take it. You know, we want this money because it was a big one. Okay. and so anyway, but, you know, I'm, I'm kind of going down a rabbit hole now and, and blabbing. But, yes, you absolutely need to have an attorney on board. Yeah. And that's one of those things, right? Like the the. There are bad actors out there. I just think that they're few and far between. And But when it comes down to it, the company's best interest is to get the most resources for the least amount of money and the least amount of time input. That's their job. That's what they were hired to do. If you or I were hired to that job, that's what we would be doing. And it's the landowners or, or let, and I'm going to pull it back from there. I'm going to say the resource owner, it's the resource owner's responsibility to try to like push the opposite direction. I want to give you my resource and capture the most amount of compensation for that. So one side, it's in their best interest to get the most for the least. And for, you know, for the other side, it's to give something for the most and somewhere you meet. And it's one of those where if nobody's happy, it's probably a good deal. You know, it's, it's, and and that's most negotiations, but knowing that it's like, you're not working against a bad guy. It's not like there's no villain in this, but you do have to watch your stuff because they have a different objective than you. And you've got to try to make them flex a little bit. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, for sure. And here's the thing I want anybody that listens to this to understand these energy developers are spending money. All they're doing is hemorrhaging from day one when they sign this contract because they're looking at permitting, environmental issues, engineering things. And then in Texas, we have a thing called the queue. So you have to pay and be given permission by the utility provider to plug into the grid. And there's a waiting list. So this is a land race right now to grab up federal incentives uh, to make these projects pay for themselves in some cases to these developers. Um, and the fastest that they can get in line to plug into the grid, the better the chances that they're going to get in there. Um, and so in the meantime, they're just spending money, spending money, spending money, spending money, and it takes years, right? And they don't want it to go that slow. They would just assume if it's economically viable, they'd be ready to plug in in a couple of years and be rocking, right? Um, and so I try to tell folks, this moves slow. And I can assure you, it's not because the developer's not in a hurry. They just can't do it any faster. <laughs> it's different by state. Yeah. I'm understanding. I think in other states you can whiz through in a couple couple years. Here could be several years, you know, depending on the location. So, I, and I was going to say too, with with that, like you said, they're putting a lot of money up front. They're not going to capture a return on investment for years. And so, when you're, you know, the longer the time cycle till return, the higher the risk. 
right? And that's just a thing. The longer I have to wait to get my money, the the higher the risk is like I have, you know, something catastrophic happens. I, you know, I'm injured and unable to work or something. And I'm, I'm talking on a personal basis, but for a company, the risk is there. Like you brought up the tornado situation. If you're waiting 10 years to get a return and a tornado hits at five years and takes out your establishment, you are sunk. And you're just hoping for insurance at that point. So, yeah. so they've got to do that diligence up front to make sure it is as viable as possible because they know they're not going to see that return for a good long time. And the, to your point, the faster that they can get that through, the better off they are in that process. Um, I wanted to ask you, or did, I don't want to overjump you. So if you need to get, if you need me to like backtrack, steer me back, but you brought up the odds of breaking ground. And I, I wondered if you could give some insight to where, and what you're talking about here is where a landowner has the land, they talk to a solar company and they go into that investigative investigative period, I'm really messing up my words right now. I got there's too many, there's too many syllables in that one, but <laughs> the, the, they start their investigation and that takes a few years. Once you are in that process, what's the likelihood they actually build on your property? Well, so the industry standard, if you ask anybody that's working in this space and they're very familiar with it, they're going to tell you 20% of all deals are going to cross the line. So that means one out of five, uh, essentially. Now that's going to be nationwide, right? Uh, maybe there's areas where they differ, but if you just want to look in generalities, one in five is going to actually get into what they call the initial term break ground, you know, put a shovel in the dirt, whatever you want to call it. Uh, the other four out of five, you're going to get a little due diligence money and they're going to terminate and walk away and say, sorry, it's just not going to work for us. And that's heartbreaking to me because for instance, I'm working with some people right now that are in their nineties. They're driving a 20 something year old suburban. They've just been scraping by on dry land cotton a uh, small piece of land. They live in a tiny town. They've never had any money ever. Um, and they asked me, the lady got on the phone one day and they're sitting in a Walmart parking lot. I tried to call her husband and she answered and she said, Wayne, when is this going to break ground? I'm ready for one of them big checks. And I said, well, you know, uh, if we're lucky five years and she goes, Oh man, really? And she, what she tell me, she said something like I'm 91 years old. I bought this suburban in 2001 like we'd sure like to maybe buy a new car, you know? And I was like, but they don't want to sell them. So they're not looking at selling though. They're looking at leasing. And it's like, that's, that's the yeah. risk that you took with that transaction process. Dang it. Yes. Like, and, and their deal, highly lucrative. I mean, it, we're talking thousand bucks an acre, several hundred acres just for their piece of this deal. Um, so if they break ground, their first check is going to be nearly a half a million bucks. They've never seen that kind of money, right? I mean, it's, uh, and that's why I love this so much. I mean, I could run around and be like, oh, I'm, I'm going green. It's not that. I mean, I live in oil and gas country, but I think a mix is necessary. I love it. I want to produce energy in all ways, but I'm looking at this from a place where people can change their life. And I'm talking like generational money. Yeah. Far better than wind pays, way better. Um, far more reliable income uh, that you can basically ledger out for 20, 30 years and know exactly to the penny what you're going to make. Uh, pass this on to the family members. I mean, it's just, uh, 
it's game changing. Do I like the fact that it's producing power? Sure. We're not, we're going to only increase demand. We need the power. I don't care how you produce it. We need it. Right. Uh, and, right. and I like that it's green and it's clean. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, in fact, I like it better. You know, it, there's a, there's a wind generator graveyard next to our family's place uh, where we go hunting. And they take those big giant wind wind generator towers down and just stack them in a yard. I've what seen do you that do with all yeah. yeah. What are you going to yeah. do with all that crap? And uh, these are just panels. And when they're done, they pull up the racks they're bolted to and they're out of there. It's over. So neat. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I mean, you know, there's the there's the tech that, that gets pulled out, but that can be recyclable as well. Um but I got I got off track there. I'm sorry. No, no. I, I want to. Uh, I I'm curious about this couple too. So, like somebody in their 90s looking at doing something like this, is this a is this a matter of setting up their family for inheritance, or is because it's one of those like I, it's almost like man, just sell and get out. <laughs> yeah, you know what? Uh, we've never fully had that discussion on why they chose that, but the discussion with her made me think that obviously it was a it's a way to change things for their family okay, financially. Okay. They won't see the benefits. Maybe, maybe not. Right. I don't know. I told him, I said, this gives you incentive to hang on until you're nearly a hundred. Right. And let's hope this thing breaks ground. Um, and, you know, basically like, don't die. Honestly, you need to stay alive here. Right. You're right. Uh, Cause if I'm 90 and I'm sitting on land like that, it's like, man, sell it and take a cruise. <laughs> yeah. Well, and so, uh I'll circle, but well, we'll get back on that. Uh, All right, right. I was just curious. If it's like, you, yeah, we can rabbit hole here. And then no, I want to tell you something. So okay. I, I had a, I had a talk about this. Okay. So why would you want to go solar? So I, and I just had this discussion last week and I have some notes here. So if they were making dry land cotton and that's what these people did primarily, okay. they're going to grow on an average year. Let's say they put together one bill, an acre of cotton uh, depending on the price of the commodities that year, I'm looking at $400 an acre for this, this piece of ground, right? Okay. That's gross income. Now you got to back out your labor, your overhead, your equipment, out, your taxes. fuel, yeah, fuel, uh, pesticide, uh, fertilizer, all that. Yeah. And, and then don't even talk about the years you don't make in your insurance crop. So 400 an acre gross on a good year. And these guys would never have to lift a finger for 1000 right now. Uh, maybe it's different in other States where the land value is 20,000 bucks an acre for prime farmland. Uh, but out here where we're at, especially where I live, um, the ground's just not that productive. Uh, maybe if you got some irrigated ground, but, uh, I've got some guys right now trying to get some irrigated ground in a solar deal. They don't care. They see the value. Um, so, I mean, you got to look at it, the perspective of that and go, my Lord, right? Gross 400 an acre on a good year or just an average year uh, and then subtract out all your inputs, uh, which is probably not going to end up being much. Or, or you just never raise a finger and you got a thousand bucks an acre that also coincidentally goes up compounding 2% a year for right. the next 30, 40 years. That's insane. Um so yeah, the, the wealth, and, and let me just say, that's a, that's a weird example. It's the only thousand dollar an acre deal I've seen. Um, I know they're out there. That's an anomaly, but they're all still better than this. They're all still better than 400 an acre. Right. Far. Right. It's one um, of those where if you're staring at sagebrush and jackrabbits, there's actually opportunity there. <laughs> like, 
Oh, and if you're looking at that, then you're talking about way bigger income than a grazing lease on some dry ground. But um, I mean, yeah, it's just phenomenal. And that's why I love this so much is it's really just oh, such an amazing tool for people. Um, and to get to be a part of that, like makes me feel good. I, I love it. Um, because you got to think from a, yeah, we, we do represent them and there is reimbursement to national land realty as part of that. Uh, just like if I managed a rental house, right? There's a fee there, a management fee, but we don't see anything out of that either for years. If ever, I might spend several years with these people and then it go away. So, you know, there's risk involved in all of it. And it takes a lot of time on our end too. Uh, but I love it enough that I don't care. It's so fun. This is a great space to be. Uh, but I want to talk about the odds thing one more time. Yeah, so yeah. when we talk about not all, let's just say this real clear, not all realtors are the same. Well, neither are all energy developers. And 20% might be industry standard. But I'm working with some guys right now that I really respect their rate in-house, this is their number. So I don't have any way to go out and verify this. Their rate of success, they have raised internally between 35 and 40%. So, so some well, outfits, some outfits are more prospective than others. Some will just vet anything and then not fill most because the could the cost game to them is the long term. You can lock down land, give somebody a, a meager proportion of of whatever just to lock it and then pick the one that you want. And which is kind of like, it sucks for the landowner because you're just sitting there waiting and you're losing that time cost of money. But then there's those other outfits that they're, they key in on the ones that they know that they want and they fill it. Oh yeah. I mean, say they're only paying someone 10 or 15 bucks an acre. Eh, they're not that worried about it. Let's lock a bunch of these up, find a good one. We'll move on. Um, but this company is telling me there's 35 to 40 you can tell it when you work with them. It took us almost four months for them to even sign the due diligence and all that with us. They did the research in advance and said, we're not going to lock you up. Some companies do what's called an exclusivity agreement where they lock you up. Maybe there's a fee, maybe there's not. And they say, look, for 90 days, we want to be uh, like, essentially, you can't lease this to anyone else. And we're going to do a little bit of digging. This company said, do what you want. We're interested in this property. We're not going to lock you up in a deal. Not going to, we're not going to burden you with that, but we are researching this place. And I'm like, all right, cool. And they kept calling me, the landowners <laughs> calling me and calling me four months later, they make us an offer that blew our socks off. Well, why is that? They had already gone through and done the grid research. So I, I haven't, I haven't gotten into this. So when I say that I would love to see you within a mile of a transmission line and within two to three miles of a substation, the things that I can't tell you is how much capacity is left in that line and how many people are plugged in to get in line to feed into that substation. Um, and and I, I don't have that ability. And in fact, it costs quite a bit of money to get that research done. Well, the companies like this one that had already done the research they have what they call like a transmission team. And these guys are like engineers and whatever. And they've got an entire group and they study these lines. They reach out to the local utility people. They're probably reaching out to ERCOT, whatever, but they're going to research not only this project, but the project surrounding it, line capacity, what's fed into this substation because all these substations are all tied together. Uh, and they're going to see, how much available space is left so we know exactly about how many acres we could actually pay for. And they've got a pretty detailed plan laid out when they come to the table. 
you talk about something that is amazing. Uh, and there's a lot that don't have the money to even do that. I mean, this takes yeah, a very yeah. specialized, very specialized group to do this. Um, and that's how, like, um, for instance, that co-op deal where I told you we lost a couple of guys, they spent months researching this project and they came back and said, I'm sorry, that line has space for a little over a hundred megawatts. Um, so we're going to take a little extra acreage than the hundred megawatt we would need to give us some margin there, but that's it. And when I say, uh, capacity for anybody that's, that's checking this deal out, um, the way it was told to me by somebody that's way smarter than I am in this field said, look at a transmission line, just like an electric line that's overhead. Look at one of those as a pipeline that's going through the air. Maybe it's buried cable. It doesn't matter. Look at that cable. So they're all different sizes. Well, it's just like a pipeline and a bigger piece of pipe is going to have more volume of fluid that you can put through it. Well, an electric line is the same. Now they're looking at wattage and all that kind of crap, but essentially, (laughs) right. But essentially that line is a certain size and there's only so much power that you could feed into that. And if it's full, you're, you're out dead on arrival. They can't plug in and do anything with it. And so the grid is full and that's kind of a problem. We're running into crowding. Um, the lingo that some of them use is curtailment, uh, especially if you're next door to a giant wind farm and how the grid out here prioritizes wind over solar. And it's a bunch of weird stuff. Uh, things I've picked up on the job training. You're not going to learn this any other way. You gotta, you sort of learn as you go. Um, like I say, you have to make the appropriate amount of mistakes. (laughs) Yes. And, And some of it's just learning, right? I found a place that just blew my socks off. It was amazing. And I just knew I sought these people out and I said, I want this deal. I can, I think I could change your lives. This place is amazing. And then we get a report back. Cause I actually took this out to people. I knew I didn't even have this lease. Actually, I did have a signed lease on it, but uh, I never advertised it. I just right. sent it out to people and said, look at this amazing find. And then the first two kick it back and said, well, um, there's a wind farm right there. That line's pretty much full. The available space, they're going to curtail us. And they, so what they do with curtailment is the local uh, electricity, the, the people that, that run the grid out here, yeah. they'll, they'll negatively price the solar energy to, to disincentivize them. So it would cost them money to feed in. And because then they make, prioritize the wind? The wind when it's right next to each other. I don't know. I've never gotten to the bottom of that yet, but it's a Texas thing, I think. Well, I mean, uh, that's going to come down to legislation. Somebody's got a special interest there for the wind. Something. Yeah, it's got to <laughs> be something. So they'll curtail it, right? And say, all right, cool. You want to feed in, you're going to pay us money. And so they're like, well, I don't want to do that. And so, and it turns out these companies run into this all over the United States. And there's a certain amount of risk tolerance that they will allow for curtailment. And in this case, they felt it was triple what they were willing to risk. And they said for that reason. Yeah. And it was like an old school Donald Trump apprentice thing. You're fired. It was, uh, that was it. We were out of the game and I had to call these people and just say, I'm sorry. I couldn't tell you how much was in that line. It's pretty much at capacity. And until that, that the grid is expanded out there, well, you got a great spot. We're not going to be able to do anything. And it was just, uh, it tore my heart out because I just thought this was the coolest yeah. thing ever. And, and I had to eat back, some- like, I got your hopes up and I'm sorry. <laughs> yes. I had to eat crow on that. Um, it was horrible. Uh, and they understood and they were heartbroken, but you know, that's the way it goes. And it, you know, and on, on the, it's not every day you unlock a conspiracy on this podcast. So we've unlocked a conspiracy on the podcast. Some 
senator somewhere has very fat pockets from a wind company. <laughs> and I actually, what I would be curious of is why that would get prioritized. Maybe there is a, a good reason for it that I don't know, but, um, you know, find it unlikely. We get a lot of, wind I wind find wind. it unlikely as well. I'm just trying to keep an open <laughs> mind. Of, I feel like I want to believe there's a best interest in here. I, I don't know. It sounds like trash, but you know, yeah. we, so, but we know but, that exists, right? So knowing that exists is half the battle. Yeah. And, and so I, at least I know now to have a red flag when I see a place right up next to a giant wind farm. Right. Um, but cause you look at it and you go, wow, the infrastructure is right on top of them. I see a substation. I see lines. They're right there touching it. Like this is a shoe in. And then they go, Nope, there's no space for anybody new. And you know what? I've run into that since then, even on battery storage and, and that's a whole nother ball of wax, but you know, battery storage, you could do gosh, five to 40 acres. And it pays insane amount of money. It's like twenty five to fifty thousand an acre. Oh, for just, yeah, okay. for just battery storage. So you don't need to have a lot of acreage, but you need to be almost on. You need to almost have the substation on you, like yeah. literally on you or next door to you that you can just tie right into everything. And I found a place like that, and uh, turns out there's a big wind farm behind it, and they're building like a two thousand acre monstrosity solar farm right next to it. And even though this place had four lines, I'm not even kidding, four sets of lines running over it, uh, nobody would touch that because of crowding. And they're like, look, there's space now, but we don't think we'd ever be able to. And it, I've, I've also found out ERCOT, which is the energy reliability, whatever, it's Texas's main group yeah, out yeah. here. So they, uh, they consider a battery storage to not only be an electricity generator, but also a load taker. So there's got to be capacity for them to charge the batteries. So however many you've got there, there's got to be room in the line to suck that load in to charge the batteries, right? So then it can feed back out later. And so it's not just a means to feed power out. You have to have the available space in the line to pull the load and charge the batteries too. And for that crowding. So, I mean, I'm telling you, there's so much stuff that goes on that we learn in this, in this space. Well, I was going to ask too, like, do you ever see anybody shopping outside of the curve? So every, every that see, this is, this is where the syllables get me. Every municipality has like a 20 year plan where they figure out where the spread is going to go and where they're going to run things. So do you ever see people starting the leasing process, meaning the solar companies outside of where you see transmission lines now, but where they, they view the 20 year plan as headed? You know what? That's pretty forward thinking. And I know there's people that do that. I haven't had the good fortune to work with anyone yet. That's sort of in that space. I okay. wish I could, because you talk about some fun now, right? That would be a blast. You could probably just almost do that full time, except for you might not get a paycheck for five years. So right. that would be, Here's that. yeah, you live in a van down by the river, but in five years, it's going to be great. Um, Things are going to be so good in 20 years, but for right now, I'm going to eat dog food. <laughs> yeah. My wife would probably have a problem with that. Um, <laughs> but yeah, that's uh, I have not. And I know that does exist. And for instance, uh, Texas has an electric vehicle charging, charging station grid build out plan. Right. Right. It's a long-term plan to build out. I mean, if you leave where I live in Odessa and you drive four and a half hours to El Paso, there's nothing out there. There's like one line running down the interstate and the rest is just desert. And uh, 
they're going to have to have grid established way out there for EV cars. They're going to run out of juice in two hours. At certain increments. Yeah. Yeah. And so, but there is a grid plan. The whole state's got it. So, and then we just legislatively in our state, and I'm sure all states have these plans. We just passed a plan because we kind of struggled during winter storm Uri in 21, uh, had some people die. People were right, power right, for days. that. So we just put a hundred million into a pot. Some of that's going to uh, a natural gas plant deal, but there's also going to be some more of that. That's going into grid expansion. It's that uh, power that you guys need in case something like that hits. Yeah. And to be able to spread out and add more power to the grid, like solar, like wind, these alternative things that we can bolster uh, what's there because so many people are moving here. We're literally not able to keep up with demand with what we've got right now. Yeah. Similar in Idaho. Um, so you talked about price. I'm sure that anybody who has listened to us jibber jabber for this long is probably <laughs> chewing on it now. Cause it cause to me, it's like, we put the honey pot at the end of the rainbow, right? Or the gold pot, pot of gold. We're, there's something nice at the end of the thing. Let's get, let's, <laughs> sure. So let's talk the money. Um, what on, and there's no average, right? Cause you just mentioned that you saw one at a high value that you never see, but what's the typical price range somebody could expect per acre when, if, if they break ground on a solar property? You know, if we just want to shoot to a really easy, I think to achieve number, let's just go for say six to $700 an acre uh, is. And this is monthly or yearly. This would be on an annual basis. Annual basis. Okay. Yeah. So whatever acres. So what they'll do is they'll go out actually and send a surveyor and they'll survey out the exact acres that they're going to use. That will become, and in fact, they might even set that up as a tax parcel and cover all the taxes, rollback taxes, anything that happens tax-wise. The, the, and, and we hadn't really talked about that, but I get that question a lot. What about my taxes? Well, I've been in ag for, you know, blah, blah, blah. What about the rollback taxes if they decide to do that? Whatever. They're going to cover all that. This developer is going to cover all and above any additional taxes that may be incurred as a result of their development. And if they have their way and if the municipality will work with them, they'll assign that as a separate taxing entity and just be its own tax parcel. And they'll just pay their own taxes and you'll just pay whatever's left. Um, and so is it, is it done? So you're, you're talking like the the building I'm not sure how the tax structure is actually, but it is that taking into account like capital gains from what you are paid? No. So that's just going to obviously become uh, the capital gains end is just going to be, you know, on the end. Typical capital side. gains. Uh, but I'm talking about property taxes. Okay. That's, I was curious about. Whether, yeah. yeah. You know, cause most of these in most cases at best has a barn, right? They're, they're ag exempt. They're not paying a hell of a lot on, on the property tax end. Um, so it's been relatively affordable. And one of the first questions I get, they don't hear you're going to make $15 million, you know, over the course of this or $20 million, they hear, well, they're going to do improvements on this property. Do I have to pay those taxes? No, you do not. When they put all those solar panels, if they build a substation, which in most cases, they'll buy the acreage from you at like 10 grand an acre if they build a substation. Yeah. Uh, but whatever they put out there, you can bet it's going to get taxed, but they will cover that for you. So you're not going to get stuck with that tax bill because everybody starts thinking, you know, oh, well, they're telling me I'm making 700 an acre, but then my taxes are going to go up, uh, you know, which at the grand scheme still wouldn't amount to much. But 
yeah, it matters yeah. to it matters to them and no they will cover that so that does not eat into your profits okay uh, so land improvement and the cost of land doesn't doesn't tax you but and I, that's why i wanted you to clarify too because you know that somebody's listening like i'm gonna get two hundred thousand dollars tax-free no you're still gonna have capital gains government's gonna take it's it's a it's pound of flesh right but oh you bet <laughs> yeah um yeah so yeah i was just really mainly talking about the the, the property yeah, tax yeah. end of that because you're still gonna get taxed you'll get your check it however you've set up in your contract they're all different but however you get paid on the annual basis that goes towards your income and you're going to get taxed on that uh, you know poor it'd be a terrible problem if all of a sudden you know i've got some guys that could be looking at making a million bucks a year uh off this whole farm that's starting basis starting basis i mean i wouldn't be sad if all of a sudden i had a fresh million a year that i just had to pay taxes on be like okay you know, let me go buy I'm new still mad I have on. to pay all these taxes on this income. Why do I have to pay all these taxes? What'd you do for it? Just to own the land. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, but, but I would a say good problem to have uh, six or 700 in my area. Is it a pretty achievable number? Right? Okay. Um, in fact, I don't have anything below that. I've seen one that was 350 an acre. And I'm going to tell you, they did not have anybody representing them. Uh, all right. So there was nobody like a national land realty there to look at this contract and go, this is horrible, right? It's the, worst, it's the worst I've ever seen. And it's on a massive ranch. Now I've looked at the stuff since then and I realized why they're not getting paid all that much. Uh, in fact, the whole deal is probably not even doable. I can't believe they even optioned it, but uh, nonetheless, I, I still, if they were going to go ahead and take an option, I would have negotiated a little more money than that. I mean, that is yeah. just beans. It's horrible. So I wanted to ask you, because we we talked about the the possibility of ending the contract once you're in. Like you're married. You're y'all just got married. Till death yep. do you part, you're in it. Yes. Um, but can you divest the land once you enter into something like this? Can and you know, let's come up with a scenario that would make that the reasonable option. Like if you are, uh, let's let's take you know an older couple, and you're getting up there, and you don't have anybody to inherit your land. So this is something that you want to capitalize on, and you want the money now, and you want to be free of it. Can you sell the land while a solar lease is on it? Well, so that's probably going to depend on what kind of contract you've negotiated. Okay. Um. And I'm not saying you can't sell. Now, are you talking about selling the entire thing, income yep. and all? Okay, no, so yeah, you... Of its value, it's no longer in your name. Somebody else picks it up and gets the lease benefits. Um, Yeah, you you can. It's so... A lot of the contracts come with... Uh, I'd have to go back and look at the exact language, but it's more or less first right of refusal. So it basically says... Because you could sell the dirt, right? And yeah. uh, try to just keep the income. Um who would buy that is beyond me because I don't Well, I was wondering it. about like selling it, like you would probably do it as a business structure, right? You so would, yes. Income producing land, you would do it based on the income and the person pays you for the potential income. And because so you're, the dirt would also obviously sell at a huge premium, but yeah. the buyer would, you know, again, for the buyer, they're looking at an income five years down the road because they're going to purchase the business for that potential income. I was just yeah, curious so about so yeah, you would look at a cap rate on that and be like, yeah, we'd like yeah. to try to capture X amount of years because there's this many years left over. And at this point, yeah. the 2% escalation, I, we haven't talked a lot about that, but most of these do come with escalators. 
um, uh, annual, or maybe they kick in after a certain set of years, but you know, you might say, okay, well, we've, we've already started escalating to here. There's this much more income. We'd like to get 10 or 15 years because there's still 20 years left, whatever, you know, you set the rate, you can sell that. But most of my contracts come with a first rider refusal that says, if you plan to sell this, we have the right to make the purchase first. Um, mm. and so, which is still okay. Cause you have a buyer online. Yeah. Yeah. And I think in a lot of cases, if they had the money or, or could find some financial backers to do it, they probably would. Um, you know, honestly, I get calls all the time for people like saying, I want to buy a working solar farm. They want an immediate, uh, income stream mm -hmm. because these are so, so solid short of losing that power purchase agreement with whoever you're selling your power to, even if these things go bankrupt, you can usually just flip them off to somebody else and they'll take off with it. In fact, most of these contracts have little clauses in there where another party could take it over. Um, or okay. they could sell it, um, whatever they want what to do. That's what I was do. curious on too, is that how many of these uh, power outfits want to just buy the land outright? I mean, that's not against the, that's, it's against the landowner's best interest because you're killing off your residual income. But if you buy the land as the power company, then you're killing your overhead that you have to pay a landowner. And then you're just paying the property taxes and it becomes, you know, part of the infrastructure. I, I could see that first right of refusal being very appealing for both parties, right? You, I need to get rid of this land. I'm getting old. I'm not going to be here to get the benefits. Just hook me up now and you guys can, you know, kill your overhead later. Yeah. And it's a cash cow, man. I mean, but yeah, so you can sell, but it's probably going to depend, you know, depending on the type of contract you've got, um, you know, you may have to go to your energy company first, uh, talk to them, you know, and navigate whatever that process looks like for them and then see if you can come to an agreement that makes you both happy. Uh, and then, and then, you know, at that time, if you can't come together, then I guess you could go open market and sell it, which we've surely got people that are always looking for, for something like that. I mean, cause you got the other end of this that we haven't really talked about that. I don't know if it's going to stay into perpetuity or not, but when they talk about uh, environmental social governance, the whole ESG stuff at the, at the corporate level with these big companies, they got, they got money to spend to buy one of those so they can say we're, we're green. Now we've just bought our own carbon offsets. We're making solar power, right? Yeah. The, the carbon offset world or the, the resource offset world is one that I'm, I'm waiting for that. I, I feel like that's one that's it's like, so here's the deal. I'm going to give you a bunch of money, keep your trees alive and I'm going to keep polluting everything like that, that whole process. It's here now. Like you said, I'm not sure what the, what it looks like that, with that moving forward because because now it's expanding right it used to be carbon offset and now it's things like we're we're saving the sage chickens and so now we get to keep messing up the river and it's like there's there's little pieces like that the companies are, i don't know how that's going to work out there's there's going to be some loopholes it's and what it is is it's new legislation so there's gonna be all kinds of wormy holes in it right like it's just it's got to work itself out over time given that we have legislatures that do their job <laughs> Yeah. I mean, if you just look at wetland banks, those have been around forever. Oh, well, they went through and ripped a highway right through this massive wetland full of, you know, endangered birds. It's cool. We bought a wetland bank. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. It's exactly that. All right. Well, I, uh, I've taken up like a good chunk of your afternoon, man. <laughs> I don't care. I could talk about it all day, man. This is I so know fun. this stuff's awesome. Um, tell it, you know, you work with this stuff all over Texas and and you're doing very well with solar 
Uh, if someone's curious about contacting you to have a conversation about solar, how do they get a hold of you? And granted, and, and I'm, I'm leading you here because I'm, I'm going to have your contact information in the notes. Um, but tell me what you like to work with and where you like to work. You know, I, so we haven't really hit this. I'm glad you brought it up. So I'm going to throw it in there real quick. All right. Um, we can get you helped out more or less just to work, just about anywhere in the United States. I actually have a team of guys with national land and we talk weekly and we share leads together. Um, I'm licensed in New Mexico. We've got guys licensed in other States, but then as a company, we've got people licensed in what? 41 States or something like that. 47. I think 47 now. Okay. So it's gone four, way up. Four, seven. We're, we're working up there. We're, I'm going for the five Oh, because I want, I want us to have a national conference in Hawaii where we set up a new brokerage and we need that Hawaiian conference. Now I, I just think that'd be fun. Um, but yeah, we're, we're going for all the States. So, you know, so we can, we can try to get you help in, in any state. The main thing is we, as a company want to operate on the safe side. So we try to make sure no matter what we're doing, technically speaking, you may not even need to have a real estate license to do this solar stuff. We choose to cover our bases and make sure that we all are. So uh, if we don't have someone licensed there, we can still plug you in. Here's the fun part. I don't have to drive to see it. I want anyone in the state of Texas, anyone in the state of New Mexico to call me. I can pull up your land data. I can analyze it. I can put together a property report and I can tell you whether or not you got a chance, right? I can do that from my office. I don't need to drive over there to see it. For that matter, we could do it on any property in the United States. We've got the tools to do that. We've got a team that will do that. Um, so I want anyone to reach out. I, I don't care where it's at. Me, primarily, I'm going to be working with Texas, New Mexico, but we've got guys in other states and we will be able to look at what you've got and where it is and see the infrastructure and tell you whether or not we can help you. Um, right. And then, and you brought up a really good point too, of, I, I actually didn't know you guys did this. So this is, yeah, I, this is me being bad at my job. Um, no, but I didn't know you all met once a week uh, to talk over the solar stuff. So you've got group input for pretty much anything that could call in nationwide where you, it's not just one person like, Oh, I hope this guy knows what he's talking about. I hope this gal knows what she's talking about. It's there's a whole group that gets together and works this stuff out. Yeah. And it's relatively new and it's not like there's an official title to it. <laughs> um, uh, we're, we're, we're the, we're the solar underground, but right. we, uh, but we do work with the renewables leads. Uh, we got a guy out in Oklahoma, we got a guy in Mississippi and we got some people covering the East coast. Um, it's, I'll tell you, it's still a work in progress on how we manage that, but we still, every Thursday, uh, try to have a, at least, are you alive? You got any leads? You need any help? Do you have any updates? What can I talk to you about? And we stay pretty much in, uh, uh, in touch all the time. And that's why I'm like, I want anyone to reach out that's interested in solar. We'll take a look at wherever you're at and see what we can do to help. Um, just on a personal level, you know, for me and my licensing, Texas and New Mexico, I can look at any, anywhere in either state. It doesn't matter where it's at, because here's the other thing, the energy developer, they might be in North Carolina. They're just not going to hop in a plane and drive out there and rent a car and go drive over and look at your place. They're not, they're going to use the same tools I have, but at a far more advanced level, uh, to, to open up that property and look at it and, and analyze it as well. So, uh, it's, it's not necessarily like if a ranch is three hours from me, yeah, I'll probably sell it. But if it's seven, it's going to have to be pretty big because cost of gas and blah, blah, blah. It's none of that. Um, I can analyze a property no matter where it's at. That's a great answer. Cause I was kind of expecting like, you know, West Texas, but you know, the answer is anywhere. If you're curious about 
leasing your land for solar. And if you're curious if it has potential, just reach out. We'll help, we'll help you out as much as we can. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, you can go to nationalland.com and like go to, you know, the state level. And if you wanted to contact a broker in the state, uh, because we have a drop down menu and you can, you can get in there and see who all's there. Uh, if you wanted to reach out to me and have me plug you in, you could go to the, the Texas site and pull me up. Um, I've got a, an office line that I also forward into my cell phone, uh, that you can always catch me on. And if I do randomly miss you, I promise you, I will call you back. Um, and that, that number is 432-287-7954. And that goes everywhere. <laughs> it's all, everywhere I go. Um, and, or you can also shoot me an email. Uh, if you call that number, I'm going to capture your data. I'll be able to get back to you. Just leave me a voicemail or a text. But, um, you know, if you want to just shoot a direct email, uh, it's just W Dunson, which is hard to spell. Nobody ever hear, heard that name. Uh, D U N S O N W Dunson at nationalland.com. Um, shoot me an email with some info and I'll reach out to you that way. Um, or just go play around on our website. Now I want to just put a plug out there. We do have a group. When you go to our website, if you just look into national land under our corporate umbrella, we have another thing called NLR solar. It's under our corporate umbrella, totally different ball game, right? They also are under national lands, corporate wing. They operate in a little different capacity than I do, where I'm going to be out here as a realtor representing you. And the most part in LR solar, they're, they're pretty well-versed and they're, they're kick butt at what they do. I think they've done something like 1100 solar projects or something. Yeah, they've done a crazy. Lot. Yeah. Uh, they're a little different in their operational. I usually kind of put them back more onto the developer side. I was going to say fact, they, they're on the kind of the developer side. This is yeah. for the consumer side. Talk to our agents, talk to Wayne, if you have the land and you're curious. And I will tell you this, if I can't do it and LR solar will help me. And okay. we have partnered together on a deal and they got it across the finish line because I couldn't do it on my own. And their expertise is phenomenal because they understand the developer side. Okay. So we got a great way to try to help anybody. Uh, if, if it's possible, we, we can definitely, we got a good shot of getting you there. Or at I least. was going to say, if it's logistically possible, we can probably help you out. Um, yeah, absolutely. Wayne, I always enjoy talking to you, man. We've talked about everything from eradicating coyotes to uh, to solar <laughs> development, man. We got we got some things good. We've had some conversation. I really appreciate it. This is always good. Oh man, I love having the opportunity to talk. I, I feel like we could just hook up and talk like at least once a week. Just, what'd you do today? Let's talk about it. Right? <laughs> no, it works well. It works well, and I, I appreciate your time, man. And 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 yeah, you're you've gained yourself a really great niche with solar. So um, I'm hoping I'm hoping you know this helps somebody out there that has land or inspires them to at least explore it a little further. Yeah, I appreciate it. And I got to plug National Land for this because before I found National Land, I had no idea how solar worked. Right. Right. And and National Land offered me the tools and said, if you want to learn about it, here it is. And I, I don't know why I thought it was so cool, but I did. And I jumped at it. And uh, here I am, like almost three years later. And we've, you know, I've just been going as, as much as I can get done. I'm doing, I mean, I just yeah. absolutely love this solar stuff. I was going to say, we don't choose where we get to geek out. We just do. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I would have never guessed, but I do love it. 
<laughs> oh man. Well, Hey, thank you very much. I'm gonna let you go with your day and uh, I'll have your contact information in the notes, reach out to Wayne Dunson uh, and he will help guide your approach. If you're in Texas, New Mexico, and even if you're not in Texas, New Mexico, Wayne can set you up with somebody who does know in your area, we can get you the information you need. Absolutely. Appreciate it, Matt. Uh, thank you.